Uh, this week, Critique is delighted to have Dr. Grant Cave. Uh, Dr. Cave is an intensivist at Tamworth Hospital and an itinerant emergency physician. Over the past several years, Dr. Cave has been involved in research into lipid emulsion therapy. With subsequent presentation on this topic in centres in Australia, New Zealand, uh, Dublin and Las Vegas. Grant, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, James. Uh, lipid emulsion therapy, it's a topical issue at present with indications uh, as in both local anaesthetic toxicity and cardiac toxicity from other lipophilic drugs. Can I start by asking you to explain the history of and concept behind lipid emulsion therapy? Yeah, the, the history of lipid emulsion therapy is quite interesting. There was a bloke by the name of Guy Weinberg, uh, an anaesthetist in the States, and he had a carnitine-deficient patient arrest on him after local anaesthetic systemic toxicity. So he wanted to create a model of carnitine deficiency. Mm-hmm. Um, and carnitine's involved in L-carnitine, acyl transferase, and free fatty acid transport into mitochondria. So he thought if he could flood the cytosol with free fatty acids, he could model carnitine deficiency. So he got some rats, infused them with lipid emulsion, and gave them bupivacaine, thinking he'd make them a heck of a lot worse. Mm. And what he paradoxically found was that he could actually make the rats much more resistant to bupivacaine toxicity. He subsequently replicated that work in dogs, and then there was the first human case report. Um, in uh, sustained local anaesthetic-induced arrest. I think it was around about 2007. Subsequently been taken up by professional societies with respect to local anaesthetic systemic toxicity and a pretty accepted indication for lipid emulsion and severe cardiovascular systemic uh, local anaesthetic toxicity. The the other toxins have mm-hmm. moved forward. There was a case again in the, in the mid noughties uh, prolonged arrest, predominantly secondary to bupropion. Fifty minutes into the arrest, patients had a lot of other mm-hmm. therapies. Get some lipid emulsion, comes good after a minute, and so it's it's moved forward from there. The concept behind it, the mechanism behind it. It's really interesting, actually. We talk a lot about a lipid sink. So the concept behind that is you introduce a new intravascular lipid phase that supposedly sucks the toxin out or a hyphenated limit fa- lipid phase into which the toxin preferentially moves mm, um, to um, decrease toxicity. There's probably a couple of other mechanisms that, that matter. Um, Free fatty acids found in uh, classically used lipid emulsion antagonise the sodium channel antagonism from bupivacaine. There's some basic science work around that. And if you actually read round the case report literature, the real on-off ones are often sodium channel antagonists, the real spectacular effects um, that you see and read about. Um, it's probably some effect on calcium channels as well, some positive effect mm. on calcium channels. And it may just be that there's some increase in free fatty acid, uh, free fatty acid provision to mm. stress myocardium, making things work as well. Okay. So given this current level of knowledge, where, where would you feel this intervention should lie in, in an algorithm to say, treatment of cardiac toxicity? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because what we've got, in terms of what we know at the moment, we've got a bunch of animal work, um, 
And in those animal models, I think there's enough there to say that lipid emulsion caused the improvement seen in those animal models. We've got a body of case report data, one small RCT, and a little bit of um, prospectively reported registry data, which shows that lipid can work in certain situations. We've done actually know where it does. You know, you can't definitively say the point in which it does, and as with any therapy, there are benefits and harms. So I think where it presently lies is for the patient who has had maximal other therapy. Mm -hmm. So perfect indication, you know, we had, uh, or perfect, um, perfect example, we had a bloke come in the other day, big amitriptyline overdose, curious duration, 150 milliseconds, um, comes up, ventilated, alkalinized, um, and came good just with that. Mm -hmm. If we had him on that maximal therapy and he was deteriorating and we felt that if we didn't change the trajectory of his illness, he wasn't going to survive, I think that's the point in time in which you should mm. use it. Mm. So just in a nutshell, maximal other therapies, maximal conventional, sure. as it were, therapies, um, and lipid uh, emulsion after that. And the other thing we always say is um, have a chat to a toxicologist. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. do, do you think there are any other potential indications for lipid emulsion therapy? It gets used and reported as used for an altered conscious state, for a lowered conscious state. And given that predominantly pharmacokinetic mechanism, it makes a bit of sense to try and use it. You know, there, there is a, a rationale for mm -hmm. seeking, if you've got someone mm -hmm. with a depressed conscious state from a lipophilic toxin, that you mm -hmm. may be able to make them better mm -hmm. with a dose of lipid emulsion. Um, what we know about that today, there's one RCT, 15 patients in each group was done in Iran from memory. Um, they did see uh, an increase in the lipid-treated group in GCS, but it was only one to two points mm -hmm. relative to the control group. I don't actually know how much that helps you clinically, and as mm -hmm. much as if you go from a GCS of five to a GCS of nine, mm -hmm. you've still got quite a high-needs patient um, and it, certainly, I think in the Australasian setting, I don't know that you benefit a heck of a lot from that intervention. I wouldn't be critical of people who use it for that reason in certain settings, though. I know there's one group who use a lot of lipid for that indication in the UK. But they've got a perpetually full ICU, and if they ventilate a patient in the emergency department, that takes a, an anaesthetist and an anaesthetic tech down to the mm. ED to look after them. So, you know, in their big hospital, they ventilate someone and they're emerged, then it's really difficult for them to do a crash Caesar. Yeah. So yeah. I can understand centres that use it a lot, although don't use it for that indication myself and don't advocate using it for that indication. So let's say we have that situation, uh, taking your, your case, uh, case example, uh, there's still ongoing signs of cardiac toxicity, the patient appears to be deteriorating. What are your thoughts on, on dosing for lipid emulsion therapy? There's a good dosing regimen that's come out of the Anesthesia Association of Great Britain and Ireland. Um, one and a half mils per kilo as a bolus, 15 mils per kilo per hour as an infusion afterwards for a half hour. You can repeat that bolus up to twice and continue the infusion until the total dose mm -hmm. is up to... 12 mils per kilo. 
Um, that's all really complicated. Mm. And I think if you're going to be um, giving or considering giving intravenous lipid emulsion, it's worth having in your head that the bolus dose is 1.5 mils per kilo or 100 mils for a 70 kilo man. And then knowing a place that you can find it either online or in um, in and around your department or environment. So that's the key, isn't it? One and a half mils per kilo, yeah. and then research yeah. subsequent therapy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 lovely. Um, a short while ago, I came across a case of pancreatitis, which was attributed to lipid emulsion therapy. Can you comment on this, and, and also any other potential complications or adverse effects of, of this therapy? Yeah, the... Pancreatitis is just starting to emerge in the literature as a complication. Just at the last North American Conference of Clinical Toxicology, there were three cases of pancreatitis thought secondary to lipid emulsion, not terribly severe. Um, there are, I think there's probably, in the American setting now, there's a reasonable amount of enthusiasm uh, lipid emulsion therapy and I think what you're seeing there is rather than it being a significant proportional complication probably a lot of use mm. in that setting um, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. Um, in terms of other complications the big one that that is reported on a lot and um, from memory um, I'm talking to Todd was involved in the case um, that you referred to is that uh, there's a big interference with lab tests afterwards. Um, there's some mitigation of that by spinning the blood down a lot, but you may not be able to get reliable <coughs> excuse me, bloods for up to the next 24 hours um, if the plasma is particularly lipemic. Um, there's talk of uh, aggravation of acute lung injury. We've got... There's probably about 50 prospective data points or, or data points that you could put some faith in our perspective. We run a, a registry, which is relatively voluntary, but at its inception we got 36 data points that we can be reasonably confident are uh, prospectively reported. Um, I've seen one, uh, one conference abstract with 10 prospective data points and that RCT that I mentioned earlier from mm-hmm. Rana with 15. So it's, um, what's that, 60-odd uh, prospective cases. Mm-hmm. The amount of complications seen there was one report of a potential allergic-type reaction. Didn't see any cases of pancreatitis reported, although when cases of pancreatitis have been reported, they've been a bit mm-hmm. delayed. Um, to a couple of days afterwards, so there's the potential to have missed those. Another thing to mention is the potential for infection, mm. um, just with the, the predominantly used formulation being associated um, potentially with some infectious complications. Didn't see any in those data points. Mm. In the reported cases in the literature, there on a review we did about 18 months ago, there were 50 cases and one case of staph sepsis contained within that. Um, What you can say about that, I'm not entirely sure. Perhaps the big adverse effect, and it goes back to the where you put it in the algorithm thing, is the talk of a lipid sink um, as the predominant mechanism. And I reckon it's probably not 
just a sink. I think it's more of a conduit to redistribution. So you first get high levels in the heart, and if the patient is going to get better, they get better first through redistribution from the heart to other lesser perfused lipophilic tissues. And I think lipid facilitates that process. That's my opinion on how lipid works. Mm-hmm. The issue with that is if you've got a big sump of drug in the gut, you know, there's the potential for lipid, to, or the theoretical potential at least, for lipid to pick that drug up and then cause either delayed toxicity or increase absorption. Mm. There's a little bit of animal data around that. Um, there's one paper came out last May in Academic Emerge, gave some rats oral organophosphate mm-hmm. and gave them lipid immediately on giving them organophosphate the organophosphate or delayed and see how long they lived and the degree of respiratory depression they had from it. And what was seen was that if you gave the lipid straight off the bat, you gave the lipid and the organophosphate orally at the same time, there was no benefit from the lipid for those rats. But if you gave it later, they lived longer and had less respiratory depression. So what we know about the potential for oral absorption isn't a heck of a lot, but certainly that paper would suggest that that potential is definitely there. Grant, you've, you've touched on a number of, of uh, research into animal models and also some case reports. Um, what, what would you say is the most compelling evidence to date for lipid emulsion therapy? I, the, what we have in terms of the animal stuff is enough there such that you've got a repeated effect, a large effect, a rationale, a temporal um, effect. So you can say it's caused it in the animal models. And then what you've got are some all or nothing cases. Um, and that's probably the most compelling evidence that, um, that we have. That does really limit what you can say definitively in terms of where you can place it in a treatment algorithm, in my view. I know there's, there's a, there are different views out there around sure. this. Um, but I think that that being the evidence base, yeah, it's rational to then use it in a setting whereby you don't think you have other options. Absolutely. Have you received any feedback on the use of this therapy outside of Australasia? Yeah, the, um, it's interesting actually. The, the toxicology, I don't think I do... Um, the toxicology community in Australasia a disservice to say they're relatively conservative in their view of um, lipid emulsion. Um, and the same could be said, I think, of the UK. I was having a yarn to a bloke who works um, at the guys, and I think, you know, in the years that lipid emulsion's been around, they've used it four times in the big tox centre in London. That contrasts a bit with the uh, American experience where they seem to use it a lot more. Mm. Um, there was something came out a couple of years ago about what American poison centres were commending. Um, and I think around 70% of them in severe tricyclic lipophilic beta blocker, calcium channel blocker overdose were commending the use of intravenous emulsion. So there's a bit of a... Um, it does seem a little disparate in terms of what's happening internationally. Let's see what gets published out of the States is pretty conservative use. There are um, a few, a couple of things floating around from big centres um, with big talks volumes that are using it sort of once or twice a year. Right. So, so given this evolving practice, do you have any thoughts on what the next step is, particularly in research, um, for this therapy? I think more human data 
mm-hmm. would be um, would be the next step for intravenous lipid emulsion itself. Um, we've got the lipemic registry. We've got 50 cases in there, but I think tightening that up and getting more firm prospective data would be really helpful and I think um, attainable. I've heard of people talking about doing RCTs. I'm not aware of any RCTs um, that are being undertaken, but that's obviously um, sort of the gold standard goal. Mm. The other, the sort of lab thing and the thing that we're doing a little bit of work on at the moment that I reckon is going to be really interesting is, you know, just going back to that story about how lipid emulsion was found, you know, it was found uh, as a result of structured observation. It wasn't a designed drug. But actually getting specific liposomal formulations, so uh, a charged outer, a lipophilic tail, creating a bilayer, get the tail the right length, get the charge right on the outside, so that it actually attracts and binds the target molecule really, really well. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the next lab space, I think, that's going to be really interesting. We've done just a little bit of lab work um, and used 8% of the lipid load of an intravenous lipid emulsion and got not as good but similar effects. So that'll be, um, that'll be fun and interesting. Yeah. yeah, an interesting feel. Yeah. Grant, thanks very much for your insight into lipid emulsion therapy. It's, it seems to be an exciting, no, novel approach to managing some some taxing conditions uh, that are encountered in throughout critical care. Thank you. Pity. Thank you very much, James. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse, our website's leading providers of critical care education and resources. Critique can be found at www.crit-iq.com and Crit Nurse at www.crit-nurse.com. Alternatively, visit our podcast page on the iTunes store and give us a high five.